Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney with the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. It's Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. I'm Chris Chimes, and this is Airlines Confidential. Thanks for tuning in. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We've got a great guest joining in a few minutes in the name of David Nealman. But first, Chris, let's cover off a few news items. Okay, Ben, we're going to go fast so we can get right to David. Uh, first up, Dateline Dubai. The Dubai Air Show wrapped up last week and Airbus mopped up, chalking up 408 aircraft orders to Boeing's 98. I personally hate to make this a horse race kind of a thing, but any surprises from the show? Orders that went to Airbus that maybe you didn't expect or just more Airbus customers buying Airbus aircraft? You know, I was surprised at two things from this, Chris. One, that Airbus sold so many more airplanes than Boeing. And two, that so many airplanes were purchased. I mean, I can't imagine a bigger vote of confidence from the global industry about the industry rebound than over 400 planes being ordered or almost 500 planes being ordered at this air show. So that volume I thought was really encouraging for the industry. I was surprised that Indigo under Bill Franke needed another 250 airplanes for their four airlines. I imagine some of that is for replacement, but I imagine a lot of it's growth. You had a new airline in India, Akaska, that started by a former Delta executive, Vinay Dubey, make the biggest chunk of that Boeing order. They ordered like 75 737 Maxes. Without that Akaska order, it would have even been a bigger mop up by Airbus. <laughs> And so I guess I'm surprised, you know, Airbus has been winning that battle, especially on the narrow body side, really since the 737 MAX was grounded. And it seems like they're carrying that momentum on, even though the MAX is selling again. So I was surprised at that, but also surprised at just the number of airplanes ordered. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment, that 408 uh, and the total of 500, like you said, that got my attention first. And then when I saw the paltry number from Boeing, that kind of is consistent with where the market's been the last uh, two plus years. But um, I think that is a good sign for the optimism and the health of the industry moving forward. Let's just hope that uh, these COVID outbreaks that are starting to pop up around the globe uh, get contained. And again, 2022 is a positive year. And then in another show of sorts, airline CEOs came parading through at the Skift Aviation Forum last week. Lots of interesting takeaways. European executives seemed a little more cautious than their U.S. counterparts regarding recovery, perhaps because of that current surge of COVID that is starting to sprout in some European countries. Doug Parker and Scott Kirby tried to tamp down on staffing shortage speculations, saying they're attracting ample interest for their staffing needs. But they did acknowledge that their regional partners and vendors like catering and wheelchair attendants 
are going to continue to struggle. So give me the Ben take on all this. Well, my take on all this, Chris, is that, you know, people go to places like the Skift Aviation Forum to tell people what they want their competitors to hear, right? And and their own people to hear to some extent. So it doesn't surprise me about the European cautiousness. I mean, at the same time we're recording this, just heard that Austria is completely closing its borders again, right? And so we're seeing more reaction in Europe of the virus than we're seeing, at least here in the U.S., or maybe reacting more aggressively than we are in the U.S. And in terms of American and United trying to tamp down concerns about staffing shortage, I don't know what else they could do or say publicly. I mean, they're not going to say, well, don't fly us this Christmas because we're going to cancel a lot of flights. <laughs> right? And so I'm sure that they've, both of those airlines and other airlines in the U.S., have gotten smarter about tying the airlines they're scheduled to fly with their operational ability to make that happen, given the reality of pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, airport people who are all coming to work every day. So I'm sure they're getting better at it, but I don't know that um, I don't know that that means there's not an issue when broader business is talking about words like the Great Resignation and talking about people not going back to work and every month now we used to we used to see reports of how many jobs were created now we see how many jobs are created and how many people left resigned from their jobs it seems like every month we're seeing that and so it's hard to think that this isn't a longer term issue for airlines around how they're going to stay staffed for the long term. They may be technically right that they're attracting ample interest for staffing needs in terms of running job fairs, getting applications for jobs, but having those people hired, trained uh, through their security check, if that's necessary for airport work and things like that, and actually showing up is a little bit different thing. So my guess is that airlines are being a little bit more realistic on the capacity they're going to fly, lining it up with the crews that they have available to fly them. And that's a little bit more likely. In terms of them sort of putting the concern on the outsourced pieces of their business, like catering and wheelchairs, I'm sure that's exactly right. The question is, does that mean some of these airlines might look at insourcing that kind of stuff again? That would be an expensive long-term reaction to that. And I'm not sure they'd be any better than the companies who do that are. But I think that sort of a a realistic thing is they're saying, we might be able to get our people to come to work, but your whole experience might still have some challenges because we depend on a lot of other people too. Well, and to your point, uh, I think some of this is going to require airlines to do what they don't like to do, which is overstaff and overhire. I mean, people want to kind of hire the right number of people and staff to the right level, but the attrition rates and the no-shows are, are just um, so voluminous right now that I, I think you're going to have to hire more people than you need and hope most of them stick. But you know, I know we're seeing this in, you know, I, I manage a, a contact center for Carnival Cruise Line, and we're seeing this with regard to how we're trying to ramp up our guest care team. We're having to hire more than we need because at some point through the training process, some people just stop showing up. So, you know, 
there's there's never any kind of perfect solution here, but they're going to have to be much more aggressive, I think, to get to the right number of people. Um, no, I think that's exactly right. Let's pause to thank our friends at Seabury Capital Group, the specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis technology and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. And thanks also to Pratt & Whitney, the world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they power the future of flight, visit prattwhitney.com. So Ben, to wrap up the news uh, before we get to David Nealman, what's your reaction to the IATA news about its move away from the NDC or the new distribution capability certification process that they were touting so wildly five or six years ago? You know, I was surprised at this and I never totally understood why they were touting it, (laughs) but the fact that they're moving away from it was interesting to me. So I looked up sort of what they were saying about it and what the way they're describing it is that they're evolving it into what they're now calling the Airline Retailing Maturity Index or the ARM Index. So NDC is becoming ARM and maybe they'll start touting ARMs now. But (laughs) one of the things they're saying is better about it is that it's going to use less arcane kind of language. Under NDC, they certified airlines under things like air stop, request and response and terms like that. And they're saying that the ARM registry uses more common lingo like shop for flights and shop for ancillaries and things like that to rate their distributors on how the how well they do things. So they're talking about it as an evolution of the idea, not a scrapping of the idea. It sounds to me like that's kind of what it is, but I'm still not totally sure how important the idea at all even is. You know, I thought about choosing my words carefully to respond to you, Ben, but maybe I'm not going to. Um, I was at Orbitz when the NDC started, and then I was at Sabre as it continued to roll out. And there was so much gibberish from the very beginning about this. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it it was clear to a lot of people that IATA was kind of pushed out to do this at the request of certain carriers and, again, trying to drive away from the global distribution systems and try to drive to more direct connect and kind of cut out this quote middleman you know it is it's been this cycle every 10 years or so you know where the airlines say you know we don't need travel agents and we don't need gds's and this will be the end of the gds's and the gds has adapted and they became a way to kind of move the ndc process through the system. But again, it was never very well explained and it could never be explained in 20 seconds. So this really didn't surprise me because it just, the whole thing kind of petered out through COVID. So let's see what this new version is going to be. I realize that airlines need to continue to advance technology and 
sell how they want to sell, but I, I, it was dressed up in a very confrontational way to begin with, and I didn't think that was useful. And you don't think the arm is going to be more friendly? I don't know. I I still trying to figure out what exactly it is. So hopefully they can come up with a way to explain it in a simplified process. I mean, technology is supposed to be about simplifying the world. And sometimes technologists spend a lot of time trying to show how smart they are and make technology confusing. So let's see if we get to a simple definition of, of what the arm is. Well, that's really smart. We'll be right back with our special guest, David Nealman. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. We're here with a living legend, someone who really needs no introduction at all, David Nealman. David, everyone knows who you are, but please tell us what made you interested in aviation originally? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I think it was just probably, I, I kind of lucked into it. I was, I was in, in college at the University of Utah, attending university, and I met someone in one of my accounting classes. Her mother knew someone who had some unused timeshares in Hawaii. And so I, I started running little wand ads in the newspaper under a vacation accommodations, renting those things out and paying uh, the owner the, the maintenance fees. And then I put it together with, with uh, Airfare and started selling packages. So that was kind of my start in the, in the industry. And then that, that company, you know, ironically, I was, I was buying the tickets from Hawaii Express, you know, the big 747s with pineapples on the tails. And they failed, and so it took my little company with them. And then uh, June Morris called me up, and, and uh, fortuitously, my uncle was her attorney, and, and uh, I wasn't returning her phone call, so he convinced me to call her back. And so I got back into the airline business, and we started by uh, you know chartering airplanes. And then eventually, Steve Hazy called me up and said, you know, I need to get you legitimate because my my relatives fly back and forth from Utah to California. I'll lease you some some uh, 737 300s I'm pulling out of America West, and uh, but you need to get your certificate. So we certificated the airline. So I, I was kind of patterning things after Southwest. I I love Southwest, and so that's kind of how I got started. It was uh, we certified and then sold to Southwest, and and kind of the rest is history. Herb fired me, and then I went to WestJet and started uh, WestJet, and then. When my non-compete was up with Southwest, I, I started JetBlue. That's great. I, I'm embarrassed to say I remember Hawaiian Express. So you uh, jogged my memory there with uh, that reference. Uh, so by our accounts, this is your fifth airline. There might have been a few others in your head that you haven't started yet. But you know, we've talked a bit about Breeze, or a lot about Breeze, actually, uh, on this podcast the last six or eight months. What have you learned from the first four airlines that you think helps makes Breeze? Uh, you know, there were lessons better. along the way at every one of them. Uh, you know, WestJet was just kind of an extension of, uh, you know, WestJet was just the closest spot out of the country because I, I had a U.S. domestic non-compete and it was only an hour and a half flight to Calgary. And so, I, you know, when those guys called me and asked for me to help them, I, it, was, it, was, it was great to, to, to go do that. And then my Southwest experience was, was really impactful. It was short. 
you know, Herb fired me after about uh, five months. But I learned a lot. And, you know, I, I met John Owen there and he became our CFO at JetBlue and he was a huge help. But I learned you could actually buy new airplanes and it would be cheaper than if you got old airplanes sometimes. And I also learned the value of taking care of your people. You know, Morris Air was, was good, but, but really Southwest was great. And so I really learned the value of, you know, valuing your, your people. I learned that a lot there. And then I had kind of a forced exit from, from JetBlue. They wanted me to be the chairman and I didn't want to do that. And so I'd kind of always wanted to go to Brazil. And, and you know, I think probably of all of the things I've done in my career, the thing I'm most proud of that's had the most impact on the most amount of people is Azul. Azul is just such a phenomenal company. I mean, it it has revolutionized air travel in Brazil. You know, the we, there were only 47 million people that traveled domestically in Brazil the year before we started. And today, there's 110 million. And we took by far the lion's share of, you know, everything else that was left, uh, you know, of that increase. And, you know, we, we serve 138 cities. We'll be back here soon to 1,000 flights a day. And, you know, our logistics business is outstanding. You know, it's we're building an amazing logistics business, kind of a kind of a UPS inside of Brazil. So, you know, so I, I learned a lot from that. And I think probably the biggest lesson I, I brought from, from Azul, and, you know, and it was also from looking at, at Allegiant and, and seeing what they were doing, was... Really, you make a lot more money if you don't have any nonstop competition. You know, we have 80% of our routes in Brazil, we have no nonstop competition. And when we go through crisis and difficulties and hard times and currency devaluations, all that kind of stuff, you just always do better if, if, you, don't have, uh, if you don't have any nonstop competition. So, you know, I think, I think Breeze is, is really a, an extension of that. To a large degree, not not only using uh, Azul airplanes, but um, but just knowing, you know, just looking at those routes and putting the right plane on the right route. You know, we started with 195s at Azul, and then you know today we have six different aircraft types in Brazil. You know, we have the Caravans and the ATRs, and we have the you know 195s. We have the E2s. Uh, we have the A320s, the A321s, and and then we have the uh, the wide body aircraft. You know, the the 330. Uh, 900s and, and 350s. So uh, soon to have the 350s. So I think just putting the right plane on the right route and trip costs, just really focusing on trip costs. Trip costs really matter, especially in a in an industry like this where you know margins are so razor thin. So it's really important to have great trip costs. David, a follow-up to what you just talked about with these different airlines. As you fly these different carriers, and I realize you're not affiliated with all of them anymore, but do you feel like they have unique personalities or are there, or are there similarities across the five brands? Uh, you know, there's similarities. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I don't get to fly WestJet at all. <laughs> Very often I'm not in Canada, but, you know, I fly JetBlue all the time. And the thing that's interesting about JetBlue, you know, I kind of got shot in my prime there a little bit. <laughs> and it was 12 years ago uh, that I left. And people act like I left yesterday. It's crazy. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen where they say, wow, we miss you so much. And, you know, this is a great company, but, you know, we miss you. And, you know, can you ever come back? You know, it's like, I left 12 years ago. It's, it's, it's just amazing. And so I think that makes you feel good, obviously, you know. And like I said, I, I mean, I think Rob's doing a great job um, trying to keep our culture and, 
what we really envisioned, you know, kind of bringing humanity back to air travel. That was kind of our mantra when we started. So, yeah, it has a, I think there's a distinct personality. I think it's hard for me to judge because everybody treats me so well on JetBlue because they're so grateful for what I was able to create there, um, you know, with the, with the team of people. Um, and then Azul is, obviously, every time I fly there, people just, you know, we have 15,000 people working for us down there and it's, Every one of them, have, their lives are so much better because of, because of Azul, not to mention the, the 30 million people we fly a year, or 30, 40 million that, you know, are obviously in a much better situation because of our company. So, yeah, I think, I think you know, it's really all about people. And I, and I always said, and I really focused on this at Azul, I just want this to be the best job you ever had. And if everyone could just wake up and say, wow, this is the best job I ever had. And I just really think the customers, I know the customers can sense that. And they really want to come back and and you know fly fly again, and that's what we try to do at Breeze. You know, it's a it's a little harder, you know, during a pandemic and all that. But we have a lot of contract people at airports and stuff that we have haven't had before. But I think they're they're getting it. You know, our net promoter scores show that um, people really love flying us. Well, David, that brings up a great question. I think you're known for airlines, like you said, that are trendy and sometimes upscale and do things, you know, differently and yet still can offer really low fares. How do you always make this work? I've told people I'd never bet against you based on your track record. <laughs> well, you know, it was interesting because you go back to the JetBlue, you know, I, I, I've well publicized that I have attention deficit disorder. And one of the worst things that I ever had to do was sit on a plane for three, four hours. It was hard for me to read a book you know, it was hard for me to, you know, we didn't have iPhones to listen to podcasts or audiobooks or any of that kind of stuff back when I started JetBlue. I just really wanted something to keep people distracted in the seatback pockets. And, uh, you know, Tom Anderson, I can still remember we had this temporary office down on 90 Park Avenue. And he walked in with this brochure and said, hey, there's this company, Live TV, that are putting live television on, on airplanes. And, uh, I was just like, wow, that's it. That's what I want. And so we investigated the cost. And at the time, you know, airlines were putting meals on flights and it was costing five or six bucks to put some soggy sandwich or some meal on there that people really didn't, you know, nobody thought, well, I'm going to go on an airplane because I want a great sandwich or something. So it costs about a dollar to put live TV and $5 to put a sandwich on. So I said, take off the sandwich, put on blue chips and give everybody live television. And so it was actually a reduction of cost. It did increase our cost a little bit, but it was something that uh, people really appreciated. And then we noticed, you know, our, our RASM as we competed with other airlines, you know, we had eight, 10, 12% higher, you know, RASMs on the, on the routes where, because we had live television. It certainly paid that, made that dollar back in spades. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, when we, when, when JetBlue added Mint, I was on, I don't know, CNBC or whatever. And, and they said, what do you think of Mint? And I said, I think it's a great idea. It's, it's all about real estate. You know, you just take the percentage of space that seat takes up. You know, if a Mint seat takes up twice as much as a regular kind of a core seat, that they call it today, but you can charge three times more, then you're better off. Not to mention the brand equity and all the other stuff that you gain from it. So, you know, it's kind of what we're thinking about at Breeze. You know, we're talking about, <laughs> we unveiled this, this 220 and people were kind of freaked out about the uh, the first class section. And I can go into why we picked the 220. But 
you know, it, it, it really is amenable to be able to kind of add, add two and two seating instead of two and three seating. You only lose one seat instead of two if you're going with a 737 or an A320. Um, and then you have the extra, of course, a row or so because of the pitch, uh, increase in pitch. But it, it takes up about 40% more space for one of those seats. So we can go 145 all coach, we can go 136 with 12 first class seats, or we can go 126 um, seats and, and have 36 first class seats. So basically you're giving up 10 coach seats to add 24 first class seats um, in, a, in a sense. So it's you know, about 40%. So if, if your fare's 60 bucks or, and you can, you can charge an extra $30 and someone can 30, 40 bucks and someone can fly first class, um, and then they have that impression of you and they, you know, they love flying you and it's a greater experience, then, you know, you just have to do the math. And sometimes it, you know, it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know, on our, on our fleet of A220s, everything in front of the exit row is basically flexible. We can, we can change out those seats in, in a day or two. So it doesn't really matter if we have 36 or 12 or we have all coached depending on time of year or, or mission or whatever. So, so which works really well. So was that the main reason for the 220 selection or you, you hinted at there yeah, were a there couple? Were, there were three there. actually. You know, it has really great short field takeoff capability. So there's a lot of runways that don't work for like a 737 or an A320. So that, that was, you know, helpful. There's probably a few airports that that would be kind of interesting. It has, because of the two and three seating, it's more conducive to having a mixed cabin. And then the third thing is range. Um, obviously it has... I love the E2. We have the E2 down at uh, Azul, which is doing great for us. They told us it would be 15% better fuel efficient. We're actually about 20, and we're it burns less fuel than the 195 and carries 136 seats instead of 118 seats. So I love that airplane. But being able to kind of put first class seats in, you have to rearrange the overhead bins with the E2, and with the 220, you don't have to. And then. Um, being able to kind of go transcon or the range is 3,400 miles, which is more than transcon. So it allows you to do a lot of interesting things uh, from a long haul internationally or, or domestically on, on thin markets that don't have nonstop service. So I'm guessing you're already thinking about the next David Nealman thing. I'm not going to ask you to give away what's in your head, but are, are there geographies around the world that you think are ripe for a fresh new airline like uh, what you're known to <laughs> no. start? You know, I, I did my duty outside the country. I mean, I'm still obviously heavily involved in Azul and the chairman and John Rogerson's running the company and doing a fabulous job with the team down there that, I, that you know, are in place. Our CFO and our chief commercial officer, Avi Shah and, and Alex Malfoltani and Jason Ward, they're, they're doing a really great job. And I, I speak to them daily. Um, and then I had that experience at TAP where we, you know, we privatized the airline, did a fabulous job, and then COVID hit, and we ended up selling it back to the government just because they wouldn't, you know, provide the support that they did the other, um, you know, other governments in Europe were doing. And so I feel like I've done my international duty, and and I'm not really, I, I just I think in the U.S. and I think COVID is really has really magnified this, magnified this is that. You know, people have learned now that they can work from home and they can work. They don't need to go live in you know, New York City, for example. Or, they don't, uh, you know, my, my team that at UBS that, you know, handles some of, some of the, you know, my investments, they all live in New Jersey and they were commuting two hours a day in each direction 
to get to get to work. And they're all never going back to the office ever. You know, they, they said we have four hours a day. We were not productive, that we're more productive. So I think people are moving to places that are further out and, um, you know, the, the only maybe air transportation hasn't evolved to. And, you know, with our low trip cost airplanes, we can do just so many things. And, you know, air travel, it's like when you when you build a golf course and then people come in and it raises the value of homes. If you have air service to a city, it, you know, people can say, well, I can go go buy a home there and live there and it's easy access back and forth. I think about Ryanair when they were flying to, you know, airports in southern France that nobody had ever heard of before. It's like, who the heck's ever going to fly down to that airport? Well, next thing you know, the Brits were flocking down there and buying all these French country cottages and loving it. And, you know, it became a very profitable route. So, you know, I think there's just so much opportunity to, to, to get people to, to live in different places and, you know, all being stacked on top of each other in cities where they're not happy or having long commutes, which, you know, is literally hundreds of routes in the U.S. that we, we look at every day. So just a lot of opportunity. So I'm not really thinking outside the United States. A long answer to your short question. But I think there's a lot of opportunity here. We'll be right back with more of our chat with David Nealman. But first, a reminder that TA Connections provides an intelligent, integrated, flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to deploy an industry-leading mix of augmentation and automations tools, configurable and personalized to your unique needs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Let's get back to our discussion with David Neoman, the founder of Morris Air, WestJet, JetBlue, Azul, and now Breeze Airways. David, what are your views on the current state of the U.S. industry now, first by addressing the tough operational and labor issues facing a lot of people in the industry? Yeah, you know, it's interesting times. Um, I read this billboard the other day that said, Stimulate your ass back to work. Every every company in this country and in the city is hiring. You know, it's it's interesting times trying to find you know enough people to to run the airline. You know, from you know pilot positions all the way down. And I think you know you've just got to create a great company with a great environment where people really want to work, and you need to be flexible. I mean, for example, we we pioneered something at a breeze that you know Danny Cox who who runs you know that part of our business along with airports, he dreamt of having a, a call-less contact center where you couldn't call. And if you were frustrated enough, we'd call you. And so, you know, we created that in every single person, as it is at, at JetBlue, but every one of those people work from home and they can carry on four conversations with a customer at the same time. And, you know, during the time this summer, we had six hour waits on reservation system lines we were handling all of our, our calls in less than 10 minutes and taking care of people. And, you know, we've had 200,000 interactions with our customers over the past few months. And we've, I think last time I checked, we had 73 outbound calls where we called them to take care of them. So I think you have to come up with new innovative ways to, you know, and, and you know, I think um, letting people be based at home, even from a pilot perspective and, Maybe offer him some some advantage to commute to work, and and just doing different things uh, to flex shifts and and you know split shifts so where people that work at home 
you have to make a company more desirable to work for because, you know, it's the great resignations on and people are used to not working and they're used to working at home. And, and uh, so you just got to be more creative. So let me pull on that thread a second, especially as it relates to pilots, because there's so much discussion about pilot shortages. How are you uh, feeling like you're able to compete uh, to attract the right uh, pilot? Well, thankfully, we're not at the bottom of the food chain. (laughs) If I was, you know, we're a 121 carrier, so our pilots have to have, you know, 1,000 hours if if they have a four-year degree or 1,250 if they, you know, have an, an associate degree and... 1500 hours if they don't have either one. So, you know, we, we have, you know, revised our pay recently. It's very, very competitive, significantly more than the regional carriers. You know, obviously we're not at the, the levels of the majors or, you know, even, you know, we're, we're below, you know, even someone like Spirit or Frontier, but our planes are smaller. But what we can offer is, you know, you can live in base, um, you can, have a lot of days off. Um, you can also um, be a captain right away. You can come in. We're you know doing direct entry captain hires, so that's that's important to a lot of people. And then you can fly a great airplane in the two twenty. We also have the one ninety, the one ninety five. So you know, I think I think we're in good shape there, obviously. But it is a challenge, and you know, I think the thing that's that's kind of most concerning that we're addressing. You know, we're working with a lot of flight schools and and working to try and figure out how to get more. When I was a kid and you guys were kids, everybody, you know, pilot was a really desirable job. People really wanted to be pilots. You know, they drew up like, there's like a dream job. And there was a lot more people that wanted to be pilots than positions were available. But the world's changed. You know, these, these kids, you know, they get out of high school and they want to, you know, play video games and trade cryptocurrency every day. And, you know, they don't want to put in the sacrifice to become a pilot. But I think, you know, it's just a re-education of the market because, you know, I had a had a conversation. Uh, I was speaking to my my stepdaughter last weekend, and she's at a really great school, and you know, she's at Northeastern, and you know, studying a, at a great school. And I started explaining to her what the compensation were for pilots were and how long it would take her to to be certified. And she made a snap decision. It's like she has a she has a year off. Of, she has a co-op at, at her school, so. She's going to take a year off and, and go get her pilot's license. And if she likes it, she's going to continue on in aviation. So I think it's just, you know, a, an education to get these, these kids more excited about aviation because they've kind of lost it a little bit. And there's a ton of jobs available. And I told her, you know, being a woman, a pilot, you can basically work anywhere. You don't need to come work for Breeze. You can work anywhere you want. So uh, there's a lot of opportunities, but there's a lot of education that needs to take place. I think, I mean, just aside, I, you know, I, I was studying avi- you know, aviation. I'm, I'm really interested in, in accidents and, and all, you know, all those things just to make sure. I mean, knock on wood, none of my companies have ever had an issue. It's just amazing how it's changed over the years. You know, there was 707s that were basically crashing every three months when they first came out. The first two 707 crashes were training flights. And I think one was, um, there were two major airlines, like TWA or American, or, that, that had these um, and then that's why Al Yulchi left Pan Am to be to found flight safety because of simulators. And simulators have done more for safety than any other instrument other than the checklist to avoid accidents. Now our safety record is just outstanding. And in that legislation that requires 1,500 hours, only 
Oh, well, you're only 25 hours are allowed to be simulator hours, which I just find absolutely insane. I mean, ludicrous, really. Why would you only allow, you'd want them at least a third of the hours to be in simulator. You could do engine outs and all the stuff that you could never do flying, you know, on a, on a normal basis. So I don't know. I need to rant about that. That just makes no sense to me. But, you know, we're complying and hopefully the FAA will, haven't done much modifications to it, but it, I would sure like to see a lot, of, a lot more simulator hours in that. It would, I think it, it would only build on our safety record. That's a great comment, David. You know, you mentioned a little earlier about the UBS guys saving four hours a day, not going into the office. Do you think business travel has changed permanently because of that or other reasons? Or is it all going to come back like some people in the industry are saying? Yeah, I don't see how it can all come back. You know, I mean, maybe the economy will grow so it could get to the level where it was. But, you know, with Zoom and, and people, you know, have learned how to do business a different way. So, you know, I, there's, no, there's no substitute for getting on an airplane. And I think Scott Kirby said recently that first time you lose an account to someone who showed up in person, you know, you're going to go get on an airplane. So there'll certainly be a lot of that coming back. You know, I was just in Vegas uh, last night and just got in this morning and, you know, there are conventions going on there now. And so there'll be conventions again, that personal contact, these Zoom conventions weren't obviously as nearly as effective. So yes, it's coming back. Yeah, I can't imagine it's going to come back to the exact same level where it was, but uh, you know, I mean, it, it could. And, and not, not because I think, you know, COVID's going to linger on or people are afraid of that. I just think that when you're you know, and tickets to Europe and, and business class are $5,000 or $8,000. You can figure out a way to kind of save that $8,000 if you're a corporation um, because they've been doing it for the last year and a half. I think there'll probably be less of it for, for a while unless the economy grows. You're right about that, I think. You know, I saw a report on TV this week that right now, Wednesdays are the busiest days for New York lunchtime restaurants. And they're saying that with people only going to work a couple days a week, most people aren't in the office Monday or Friday. So Wednesday's becoming the peak day. Imagine if the industry changed that way where people only flew on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You know, it's, it's, it's really incredible. The changes I saw, you know, Mr. Wonderful from, from Shark Tank the other day. And he said 55% of his people that work, he's like 10,000 employees, um, 55% said they never want to come back to the office ever again. And he's like, okay, we'll accommodate you because it's a tight labor market. I can't require you to you know, come to work. And so he said, you know, I think it's better for them and we'll make it work. So there has been radical changes in, in people's, you know, a shift in a way. And, you know, I think a lot of it uh, is good. You know, I think people's lives will be better if they don't have to commute for four hours a day. Well, all these changes are the result of technology and how we can work differently. You've been at the forefront of so many technological changes in the airline business, whether it be ticketless travel, you talked a bit about putting live TV on JetBlue and your new outbound uh, customer service uh, philosophy. Where's the next frontier, you think, on technology and airline service? You know, I think it's just an extension of where we're going. You know, it, when I started JetBlue, and I, you know, I've, I've said this many times, but it was, you know, I said it was, it was a customer service company that just happened to fly airplanes, and, you know, we really wanted people to lines to move quickly and people to smile at you as you handed your boarding pass. 
and we just wanted you know people to be friendly and it's like ah nobody cares if you're friendly anymore really they don't want to stand in line you know it's it's changed you know i have an uber app if i ever heaven forbid if i ever had to speak to anyone at uber or or at amazon i don't want to speak to anybody i just want to have an app that is just so <laughs> user-friendly and functional that i can do everything on that app and never you know have to speak to anybody you know it's so now breeze is a technology company that just happens to fly airplanes and so we hired a team of 20 people and it was interesting i, I you know i founded navitaire w- along with my my co-founder who was the technology guy and and he's still the ceo today it was called open skies at the time but david evans is the ceo of navitaire and you know i i talked to him about you know coming to work for us because we founded the company right across the parking lot from where I founded Navitaire. And so he said, well, you know, I, I have a responsibility here and I really didn't want him to leave there because, we, you know, we need him. So we hired his son, D. Evans. <laughs> he says, you get my son, you get everything of me. And Dee's reminded me since then that good thing you hired my dad because he's kind of older technology than I am. So D hired a team of, you know, 20 going on 30, 40 people that have built this amazing app it's clean and functional and you can change and cancel and do everything and add things to it. And you don't have to speak to anyone. It's as close to an Uber app or an Amazon app as you can get. Every single person that, you know, we get their contact information. If you have to make a, a booking, you have to give us your contact information. That way we can speak to you. If a flight's late, we can send you messages. You know, if, if uh, you know, we need to tell you something about your flight, but I think just this, you know, kind of then moving into a super app where you can, you know, I'd like to, if you're flying R220, I'd like to send you a message the day before and say, hey, see you're coming tomorrow. We've got a great filet mignon sandwich for 15 bucks. Would you like us to have you one on the airplane for you? Um, Just click here and we'll make sure we serve you. So, or, hey, we noticed that you're, you know, born, you know, you're, born in the 70s and you're a child of the 80s and you know there's this great band this 80s band um you know playing in the city do you want tickets you know we can arrange them or you know here's your hotel we know you like this hotel we got a special deal on you know just something where you have this communication with your customer where you know them they know you and you can serve them up things on on to make more money but then also make them happier so I think that's kind of the the, the future and, and uh, just having this direct relationship with your customer using, using the technology that we've developed. Well, David, it's not a surprise to me why you've been so successful. As we close up here, you've mentioned Southwest as a company you've respected. Are there any other competitors that you especially admire? And if so, why? Well, I think, I think yeah, I mean, I think Delta's done a great job um, getting themselves you know, when we when I started JetBlue, it was, you know, I remember speaking to you, Ben, one time at a Wings Club, and you were flying Metrojet, and you're like, you're killing us. You're absolutely killing us. Like, Why is this guy laughing and smiling as he's saying you're killing us? Um, but, you know, we did, we had something so revolutionary with live television <laughs> and brand new airplanes and, you know, leather seats, and it was so revolutionary that, it, the, the gap between what we created and the other guys was so great. And it's not that way anymore. You know, Delta and has got TVs on, on, I watched, uh, 
you know, the Jets and the Miami game today as I was flying up from 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 Las Vegas. My nephew plays for the Jets, so um, he's up. He's injured. But um, and so you can watch TV on the airplane. You, you had free messaging Wi-Fi on, on board the airplane. I think United's now going to all, all TVs as well on all their flights. And so, the, you know, the competitors are, are much better. I, I really respect what Allegiant's done over the years. You know, they've just carved out a niche. You know, they've, they've gone to all these cities and carved things out and have tremendous amount of cash flow and, and large margins, huge margins. So, you know, we want to just take what they have and see if we can improve on it somehow um, by having a plane that has a lower trip cost and maybe do some markets that, you know, maybe not work for them that would work for us. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for those guys and a lot of respect for that. Really, the airlines have, are just much better technologically and customer service wise and product on the airplanes than they ever were when we started JetBlue. So there's been maybe JetBlue led to some of that, you know, because we were the first with TVs and everybody realized how much customers loved it. And then now JetBlue, of course, has free Wi-Fi. And and so, you know, we're going to be we'll, we'll do that on on uh, Breeze as well. So. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of good things out there. We just want to have a plane that has unique capabilities that can do things that maybe others don't want to do or, or can't do. Um, that's going to be our, carving out our niche. Well, David, you've been both gracious and generous with your time uh, on the holiday week. So we appreciate your talking to us. I know our listeners are going to love this. And um, we uh, wish you the very best as you uh, start zooming on Breeze Airways uh, with a lot more growth over the next uh, few months. Thanks for having me on board. Anytime, we'll maybe we'll follow up sometime. Well, thanks so much, David, and I can't wait to try Breeze. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Ben, that was a great get with David Nealman. Uh, listeners, hope you learned a few things. I know we did, and now it's your turn to ask us questions. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, I'm going to let you start with this first question. It's from Ed in Utah. Is the essential air service program something that needs to be reevaluated? The cost to subsidize tiny markets to get subpar service from habitually delayed Part 135 carriers is ever growing. What do you say to that, Chris? Ed, the answer is yes. It probably should have been reevaluated 20 plus years ago. This was, you know, a lingering after effect of the Airline Deregulation Act to guarantee small communities that were going to be hurt by deregulation. It made sense, you know, after 1978, maybe for 10 or 15 years, but at some point, uh, the market's got to work its way out. You know, in some ways, I think it's almost more important that there's some essential air service support for cargo. Um, you know, how do you get critical goods to these small communities versus the random 
15, 20, 30 passengers a day, if that, sometimes in some of these markets. So, you know, I'm thinking more in the context of how do you get the mail to small communities? Um, how do you get uh, urgent medical technology or urgent medical equipment or prescriptions or whatever it might be to these small communities? So even then, it doesn't always have to be flown. Um, overnight trucking is pretty efficient now as well. So yes, this program needs to be reevaluated and slimmed down considerably. It has been cut back over the years, but um, not enough. Well, Chris, I'm not sure if you know this, but when I graduated from my master's degree, that was way back in 1986, and we had to do sort of a thesis to graduate. And my thesis is what's going to happen to air service at all these small cities when the EAS program sunsets? Because as you just said, it was created as part of the 1978 Deregulation Act as a 10-year subsidy. And so I was like doing this thesis saying in two years, these subsidies are going to end. And so I'm trying to figure out which, which cities would support service to hubs and which airlines would do it and tried to make all these predictions. And the one thing I didn't assume was that it would be renewed for another 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I started my career in politics and worked for a congressman uh, that represented the San Joaquin Valley, which was actually the most impacted geography in the country after deregulation. Uh, Fresno was getting essential air service support, Merced, Visalia, these small towns. Um, uh, you know, eventually the region coalesced behind making Fresno a much more regional airport, which is, is now thriving. And, you know, they've got probably eight or nine airlines. Southwest just started. But you, know, you, you can't have airports every 50 miles in a, in a sparsely uh, populated area or even sometimes every 200 miles, um, unfortunately. So, um, but, you know, I, I was very familiar with the essential air service process working in politics because the, the old CAB and what was left of it after deregulation, they were in our offices probably every other month to let us know that another carrier was going out of business and they were going to name a new essential air service carrier. But I think this, the purpose of this program has reached its uh, useful life. Well, one thing for sure, Chris, if we have any listeners from a city that's served by an essential air service carrier, I'm sure we're going to hear from them. Yeah, no, I, someone's going to snap my neck off. I'm sure. So <laughs> Ben, here's one for you and our listeners are not going to take no for an answer on this topic. So at least James in Australia. And the topic is low-cost carriers operated by mainline carriers. Uh, here's his comment. Ben has over a number of recent shows expressed some skepticism regarding the ability of a full-service airline to operate a low-cost subsidiary. Perhaps a possible exception is Jetstar as a part of the Qantas group here in Australia. At least pre-pandemic, they were very successful both domestically and short-haul international. It also created a number of international brand franchises in, for example, Japan and Vietnam. Ben might quibble about how low-cost Jetstar actually is, and I would personally never travel on it, so it must be reasonably low-cost. Incidentally, there's a current proposal to start an independent ultra-low-cost carrier here in Australia named Bonza. Anyway, Ben, would appreciate your comments. Well, I think Jetstar is an example 
James, and I and thank you for pointing this out, of an airline within an airline that has kind of worked. And I say kind of worked because Jetstar has grown and Qantas has grown. And the two don't seem to sort of overlap all that much. And maybe, in fact, that's why it's worked. My sense, and if anyone who works at Qantas would want to come on the show and talk to us about this, that'd be great. My sense is maybe they actually separate Jetstar more than, say, Metrojet was separated from U.S. Airways or TED from United or Continental Light from Continental. And those examples, those U.S. examples, the airlines were still sort of scheduled and run and marketed by the big airline. And they were really more a way to lower labor costs because they could talk their pilots into flying for a lower rate because we have to compete with Southwest or, or whoever they were, you know, intended to compete with at those times. And Jetstar, it seems to me is sort of was drawn from a blank sheet of paper as we're going to start a new airline and, it doesn't seem to have been infiltrated as much by Qantas itself. I may be wrong about that, but that's my sense. But I agree with you. It's a good example of a big airline group, Qantas, running Jetstar. Now, IAG, which is also an airline group in Europe, owns Vueling, which is a well-run, low-cost airline in Europe. So certainly at the group level, it can be done. I'm still skeptical about whether one airline can just sort of carve out a piece of their operation and try to run at lower cost. Maybe that's not really what Qantas has done, though. And I'll point out that Australia's had a low-cost competitor before. Remember, Tiger Airways, based in Singapore, at one point set up an Australian operation. I don't know how successful they were. I think Qantas and Jetstar competed heavily against them. But it'll be interesting to see if Bonza ever gets some momentum. My guess is Jetstar has a lot of momentum in the market. They're quite a big carrier now, and it's going to be tough in a country that size, which isn't that large in terms of the number of people and very long distances to travel with that, not that many people, that it's going to be hard, I think, to, uh, to make it work. But I wish Bonds a luck for sure. Ben, I already used up my energy ranting about NDC, so I'm not going to add anything to that, but <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. Well, more Airlines Confidential in a minute, but thanks to Clear, which makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. Now, Chris, I think that's a technology company that is at least is clear in what they do. They're very clear, and they've got a good they've got a good name to make it clear. So that's right, Ben. It's time for finer wine, and this week's finer wine is from Susan in Las Cruces, New Mexico. My grandson, age thirteen, and I have reservations from SeaTac to El Paso on the same flight on Alaska. Alaska assigned me a seat and not my grandson. I called to have him placed next to me, and they are charging one hundred and twenty-five dollars. Ben, wow. I think there's something missing here, Chris. I can't imagine that Alaska charges $125 for any coach seat. Now, maybe 
maybe the grandmother in this one, maybe Susan, it was sitting in a first class seat on Alaska. And in fact, that's what it costs. The difference between her grandson's seat in coach and her seat in first class, that could have been $125. Or somebody, maybe the child's parents could have bought the unaccompanied minor services on Alaska, which might have been $125, which is you know, most people know we'll have, you know, a flight attendant or someone from the airport watch the the unaccompanied minor, make sure they get picked up at the gate, make sure they get in their seat correctly. I'm not sure why they would have bought that with the grandmother traveling with them. So if it wasn't an unaccompanied minor and it wasn't a difference in fare to sit next to his grandmother in first class, I think there's something that Susan isn't telling us here. So I'm going to say this is a wine because there's no way that Alaska charged $125 for a coach seat assignment. I agree with that. Uh, and having managed uh, customer service teams before, you know, one thing that I've always learned when talking to a customer service agent, I always write down the date I spoke to them, their name, what time it was, and exactly what I heard because so many times what people hear and what's said, there's a misconnect, but I, I agree with you on the assessment and there's something missing. So as we get ready to call this a day or a podcast, uh, I want to replace my weekly quote shout out with more of a weekly acknowledgement of sorts. Jan Crandall, the wife of our friend and industry legend, Bob Crandall passed away last week. Many called Jan the first lady of American Airlines when Bob was there. She was always very supportive of Bob's career, but she also had a career of her own in nursing. More importantly, she was always very kind and respectful to the American Airlines team whenever she was around, either on an aircraft or in the office. Our sympathy to the Crandall family. That's a real nice sentiment, Chris, and uh, it is a sad day for the Crandall family. I had gotten to meet Jan Crandall when I worked at American as well. And in my short interaction, she was always just so friendly and so lovely. And, and I'm, I'm sure Bob's going to miss her greatly. Well, for my shout out, I'm going to give my shout out to a little tool from a company called Nerd Wallet. We all have frequent flyer miles. And everyone knows that one of the reasons frequent fire miles work, just like gift cards work, is that not all the miles are used. That's called breakage, of course. And the rate at which miles or points break, meaning they're earned but never used, goes a lot into what it ends up costing to get a free ticket or an upgrade or things like that, because it goes into the economics of the frequent fire program. Well, Nerd Wallet is trying to upset that balance again because they're creating a tool that operates like a little quiz. You tell them what points or miles you hold, and then it tells you all the ways you could go use those miles right now, either flying or in other things. And the idea is trying to encourage people if they have little, um, you know, stub end point miles from after redeeming a trip or they just got a lot of miles of sitting around. It's trying to encourage them to use them. I think it's great that Nerd Wallet is saying if you've got these points, they're a currency like like dollars in your wallet, so find out a way to use them. I'm not sure airlines are going to be that excited that they're trying to do that, but my <laughs> shout out goes to the fact that they're trying to help customers 
get better use out of the miles that they otherwise can't use. There you go. I like that. Well, as we uh, power down, uh, we're recording Thanksgiving week. The show goes live the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So whether you're listening the day before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving day, the days after, we wish you a great holiday. If you're traveling, stay safe. If you're flying, we hope it's uh, uninterrupted and safe and look forward to talking to you next week. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. We'll be back the week after Thanksgiving to talk about did the airlines do it right this time? We'll see. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.